you'll find with a lot of athletes, the influence their coaches have on them is a lot greater than the influence their own parents have on them. Coaches, your athletes are going to remember you for the rest of their life. How do you want to be remembered? I struggled with depression and suicide, attempted my own life three times. Uh, all three of them were intervened by the grace of God. We don't go through what we go through for ourselves. We go through what we go through to help someone else who is going to go through the same thing. Fellas, 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 welcome back to the Farm System Podcast, your home for baseball development. We're here for you, by you, and with you. I'm your co-host, Joey Cunha. And I'm Bo Callis. This podcast is designed for coaches, players, scouts, really anyone looking to further their development in the game of baseball. Here at the Farm System, we take pride in being lifelong learners, and we're here to be a bridge from where you are to where you're going. We'd like to welcome back our veteran listeners. We're happy to grow with you again. We'd also like to welcome our first-time listeners, the rookies. Don't worry, every vet was once a rookie. On this episode, we sit down with Riley Tincher. Riley Tincher is an All-American pitcher turned author. He also is a mental conditioning coach with a master's degree in sports pedagogy with an emphasis in sports psychology from Baylor University. He's the owner of Coachability, a mentorship program that serves athletes at every level, youth, high school, college, and professional and Olympic ranks, all throughout the entire country. He's also the author of his book, Pitching Against Myself. Pull up a seat, grab your notepad. Here's Riley Tincher. Welcome back to the Farm System Podcast. We're sitting down with Riley Tincher, author of Pitching Against Myself and also Mental Performance Coach. Riley, we appreciate you taking some time out of your day to sit down and chat with us here at the Farm System. Thank you, Joey and uh, Bo. I really appreciate you guys giving me this amazing opportunity uh, to be on such a great podcast uh, and be a fellow guest with the likes of Eric Cressy and Diamond Hall and all of those guys. So thank you guys so much for this amazing opportunity. Absolutely. I mean, we just think you could provide so much uh, value. I mean, me and Bo heard your personal story and we think it's so much, uh, so, it has so much value to players that are going to be dealing with this issue either now, or maybe still currently dealing with it or things like that. And, and, you know, we really are excited about this podcast and, you know, what it can do for the baseball community. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to be here, especially, you know, now is such a perfect time because baseball season is ending uh, for a lot of college athletes uh, and high school athletes. Softball season is ending for a lot of uh, high school and college athletes, and they are going to be inevitably faced with the question every athlete has to ask themselves is, what do I do now? Uh, so this is perfect timing. Absolutely. Awesome. And um, like, like Joey mentioned, we both heard your story and we really inspired and thought it was so powerful. If you wouldn't mind, can you kind of open up about your journey and, and kind of open up what, where the game of baseball has taken you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, we learn our lessons retrospectively, uh, looking back and oftentimes when we're in the hardest points of our life where we're experiencing the most pain, 
we don't know why it's happening uh, until later on. Uh, I'm a big believer in life doesn't happen to us. It happens for us. And in every situation we are in, we are able to learn something from it and glean something from it uh, and help radically transform our lives if we are paying attention to it. So my story uh, is very much beautifully intertwined, even though it's filled with a whole lot of struggle. Um, it really starts when I started playing baseball in eighth grade. Uh, before that, I was, you know, I would play wiffle ball in my neighborhood with my neighborhood friends. And on occasion, we would go down to the Little League fields and play home run derby. And it got to the point where we would go down to the Little League fields and I would be the only kid in the neighborhood who could hit the ball out. So I got encouragement from them to, hey, maybe you should actually start to play baseball. Uh, so summer of my eighth grade year, I finally pulled the trigger and tried out for the team. And fortunately, I made it. And to say my first impression of baseball was awful would be an understatement, uh, mainly because I was I was terrible, terrible in the sense of the first ground ball I got in left field, uh, the ball went right between my legs. And then as I ran back to the fence to get it, instead of throwing it to the cutoff man, uh, I threw it to the wrong guy. And what should have been a single ended up being an inside the park home run. Terrible. <laughs> also, uh, talking about going over the entire season, terrible. And not even that, but not even making contact with the baseball, striking out every single at-bat I had, terrible. And also a left-handed kid trying to be a catcher, uh, terrible. Uh, <laughs> as we all know, there's no such thing as a left-handed catcher, especially in the major leagues. Hopefully it was, will be someday, uh, but I doubt, I doubt that's ever going to happen. But uh, I knew I was terrible. My teammates knew I was terrible. Uh, the opposing team for sure knew I was terrible. Uh, <laughs> my parents knew I was terrible. Uh, and unfortunately, my coach knew I was terrible. Um, I was so bad that he felt the need to lie to me and my parents at the during the season uh, just so I wouldn't show up to practice in games. And uh, at the end of the season... He, after we broke out of the huddle for the very last time together as a team, uh, he took me aside and put his arm around me like a loving, caring coach does and tells me three words that would forever change the course of my baseball career and create the biggest chip on my shoulder. He said, Riley, you should quit. And he followed that up with, because I don't believe you have a future in baseball. And at that moment in my life, at 14 years old, uh, I had to make a decision. Uh, do I follow this coach who I desperately wanted to impress and desperately sought the approval of? Do I listen to him and quit? Or do I follow my own passion for baseball? Uh, and I'm, I'm willing to guess you guys knew what I chose. Uh, and fortunately, the next year, I was introduced to one of the best baseball coaches in the country now, uh, Coach Darren Everson, who is with the Colorado Rockies now, the minor league hitting coordinator. Uh, but he was my high school baseball coach. And the reason why I consider him one of the best is because he believed in me more than I believed in myself. Uh, he demanded more from me than I demanded from myself. Uh, and he lovingly uh, told me 
hey, Riley, we're not going to be a left-handed catcher anymore. Uh, Let's turn you into a pitcher. And he continued to give me chance after chance after chance, uh, despite everybody else telling him not to. Uh, And he never gave up on me, despite everybody else giving up on me. And uh, I I got my first ever start as a pitcher my freshman year. I was on the freshman team, and uh, I didn't get a single out. I walked every hitter I faced. I think I gave up 10 runs, to be honest. Um, And he didn't let me quit after the game, even though I desperately wanted to. And he actually did the opposite. He continued to give me chance after chance after chance until I finally made the varsity roster uh, my junior year. And I got the ball to start game two. And you would think after giving all these chances – that I would take advantage of these opportunities. But uh, I didn't. (laughs) And my first varsity start was very much like my first ever start. I walked every hitter I faced and didn't get an out. Now, I didn't give up eight runs, but I still didn't get an out. And uh, as I was getting pulled from the game, I'm walking back to the dugout, and I look in the stands, and guess who's there? My eighth-grade coach. And when I got to the dugout, I put a towel over my head. I start crying and I couldn't help but think, you know, my eighth grade coach was right. I should have quit. I don't know why I'm doing this. And that whole bus ride home, we fortunately came back and won that game. Thanks to a very talented team that I was on. And uh, the whole bus ride home, I couldn't help but think, man, this is it. My baseball career is over. Um, no way I'm going to get another chance after this. I blew it. And Coach Everson took me aside as we got back to the high school and brought me into the field house, told me he wanted to meet me there. And I'm thinking, oh, great. Now he's going to physically punish me. Let's make this day even worse than what it is. <laughs> but he, But he didn't. He actually had me throw a bullpen because I only threw about 40 pitches that game. And before the bullpen, he told me, Riley, watching you pitch today was like watching paint dry. (laughs) He's like, you took so much time in between pitches. I timed you one time, and it actually almost took you two minutes from one pitch to throw the next. And the more time you took, the worse you got. So this bullpen, we're going to pick up the pace, and that's going to be the focus. You're going to throw nothing but fastballs, but you're going to get back up on the mound as fast as you can. And after every single pitch – I threw, he was behind me yelling again, again, again. And when the bullpen was done, I was walking out with him and my catcher, Brian Zimmerman. And he put his arm around me just like my eighth grade coach did. And he said, Riley, I want you to pitch. I'm going to give you another opportunity to pitch this weekend in our doubleheader. And I want you to pitch the same way you just pitched that bullpen and the same way your teammates and I believe you can pitch. Now, those are very powerful words for a 16-year-old kid. And the next start I had, I got up on the mound, and I threw strike one. And out of the bullpen, or out of the dugout came this booming, echoing voice yelling, get back up there. And it was Coach Everson. And the reason why I say booming, echoing voice is because he's a monster of a man. He's mm-hmm. six foot four, 300 pounds. His hands are more like bear paws. Mm -hmm. But it came rumbling out of the dugout. 
I was immediately in shock. I was scared. And I got back up on that second pitch. All of a sudden, I throw strike two. Same thing. Get back up there. I rush back up onto the mound, throw strike three. And as soon as the infield throws it around after they do with strikeouts, I get the ball back again, and he yells it again. Get back up there. And he continued to yell it after every single pitch I threw that day, which was well over 100 pitches. And it was so funny because at the end of the game, I wasn't the only one that was rushing to get to the next pitch. The other team was actually rush. The, the hitters were rushing up to the plate just so he wouldn't yell at them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I ended up breaking our school strikeout record that day, all because of the relentless belief Coach Everson had in me and the constant encouragement. And it's amazing what one week can do with that belief and encouragement. I go from not getting and walking every batter I face to breaking the school strikeout record the next week. And I took a lot of lessons from that day. Mainly one of them was I'm actually good enough to play this game and I'm actually good enough to play at the next level. And sure enough, a year later, because of his constant belief in me, I signed to play uh, college baseball, uh, despite being told that I should quit four years prior. Uh, And that summer, I actually pitched in the Northwoods League, and I became the first high school baseball player to play in the Northwoods League. And the next year, I transferred to a junior college. My first year experience at my first junior college was about as awful as my first year experience with baseball. And uh, I transferred to North Iowa Area Community College with head coach Todd Rima and pitching coach Travis Hergert. And the great thing about it was they signed me without even seeing me pitch. And it was all because of Coach Everson's recommendation. So Coach Hergert stuck his neck out for me and signed me, took a huge gamble. Uh, And because of him, I was able to reignite my competitive spirit again. And the next year, I transferred to University of Wisconsin-Whitewater with Coach John Vodenlich, a Division Three powerhouse. And the first practice of the spring, the fifth, probably the fifth or sixth throw of our throwing progression, my throwing partner throws one up in the air, and I jump up to catch, and at the same time, a baseball rolls underneath me. And I land on top of the baseball with my left foot, roll my ankle on top of it, bust my ankle completely. At that moment in my life, another pivotal moment was, do I let this injury defeat me or do I find a way to to get onto the roster somehow? Because mind you, uh, especially Division Three, all athletics, really, you're never guaranteed a spot on the roster, even if you have a scholarship. And I fortunately uh, chose to find a way. Now, also, unfortunately, what should have been a 12-week recovery ended up being five weeks. Uh, And I, for sure, I was going to say probably, but for sure, rushed back too soon. And my performance suffered because of that. And one of the times I threw four pitches in one of my outings, two of them were doubles. And one of them was a home run. That night, I get a phone call like I did every single game of my college career from Coach Everson. I start to complain to him and point fingers elsewhere, complain about my playing time, 
complain about Coach Vo not giving me a start or putting me in the bullpen because, you know, I'm a better starter than I am a reliever, or so I thought. And Coach Everson stopped me dead in my tracks, and he told me something I didn't want to hear, but I needed to hear. He said, Riley, stop complaining. You're better than that. He said, losers complain. Champions contribute. And I said, yeah, but I can't. How do I contribute if I'm not getting playing time? He said, Riley, I want you to st- I want you to prepare for every single game as if you're going to start. And I want you to use the same routine you had in high school because I was a very big routine guy. I had everything to a T. I was meticulous with my routine. I knew exactly what I was doing every single minute of every single hour in between starts. And I was very, very detail-oriented. Uh, and I would actually get super, super ticked off if I got pulled from that routine. But I got away from it in college. The next game, we played our conference rival, Stevens Point. I didn't, get, I didn't get the start, but I prepared as if I was going to. Same thing with the next game and the next game and the next game. But I continued to prepare. One of the chapters of my book is actually called Scrubbing Bubbles. And part of my routine, uh, this is where I talk about my routine, but part of my routine was cleaning my cleats with scrubbing bubbles the bathroom cleaner uh it makes your it makes your cleats and your shoes look pearly white by the way uh for for any baseball players looking to clean their cleats scrubbing bubbles is a hidden gem but anyway uh (laughs) that's the whole chapter of my book is about preparation the value of preparation and everson relentlessly told me this he said as soon as your name is called it's too late to prepare so you might as well stay ready. That way, when your name is called, you don't have to get ready. And the mm-hmm. next week, after this, these two doubleheaders against Stevens Point, who we swept, by the way, first time in school history. Uh, just had to throw that in there. Um, <laughs> the next week, I got to start, despite only throwing a couple innings in the season prior to that and having a well over, I think it was like a 13 ERA at the time. I got to start. And I performed really well. And this set me down a course for the rest of my career in college. Uh, I finished the season that, that season with 13 innings pitched. It wasn't what I expected. My performance wasn't what I expected. And I told Coach Vo at the end of our uh, end of season individual meeting, I told him, I'm, I was frustrated. I'm disappointed in myself. Uh, and I'm going to come back next year better. And that summer, I read a book called Mind Gym by Gary Mack who is the pioneer of sports psychology. Uh, And this book helped me overcome a ton of fears that I had, Uh, fears of playing in front of a large crowd, fear of uh, failing, more more specifically, fear of failing in front of my coaches and teammates. And it also sparked my love for sports psychology. Uh, And the next year, I went from pitching 13 innings to winning 13 games and leading the entire NCAA in victories. And winning several awards like Pitcher of the Year and All American and et cetera. And that next, that summer, I pitched in the Northwoods League again, but this time I was an all star and I was playing against and striking out guys who are now in the major leagues. And the next year, same story win 10 games, win several awards again. And I go from the best week of my life leading my team to the uh, College World Series, uh, winning several awards again, 
to one of the worst weeks of my life, uh, get, getting several letters in the mail uh, from pro teams, calls from pro, pro scouts saying they're going to pick me up to losing uh, in the College World Series to a team I should have beat and not getting any phone calls, no letters, nothing, no offers. And I quickly spiraled out of control. I had this dream of playing professional baseball. And for a long time, I dedicated my life to this sport. And my dream of playing professionally didn't come to fruition. Despite having all these clues of playing in the Northwoods League, proving myself as an all-star, winning All-American awards, but none of it ever came to fruition. And again, I spiraled out of control. I had a complete identity crisis. Didn't know who I was. Didn't know what I wanted to do. And I fell quickly into depression. Uh, and suicide sh came shortly after. Uh, and I attempted my taking my life three times after that over the course of the next three years. Uh, but fortunately, I was good in school. And I was encouraged by my assistant coach, Coach David Prochinsky, to go on to grad school where I went to Baylor University. I studied sports pedagogy there, which is just another fancy word for coaching. It's the art and science of teaching sports skills with an emphasis in sports psychology. Uh, and in the time I was there, I was working as a strength coach with the football team, the volleyball team, the softball team. Uh, but in the back of my mind, I'm still struggling with I should still be playing baseball. Why am I not getting a chance? And to make matters worse, I see guys that I was playing against and with that are now getting opportunities that I wasn't, that I thought I was better than. So this depression, this identity crisis became worse because of the comparison. And that ultimately led to me uh, trying to take my own life when I was at Baylor. Uh, but I can stop the story right there because uh, this leads to a number of a whole lot of different things stemming from this area. Yeah. So, you know, stop, stopping the story right there, you know, obviously your, your identity is at that point tied in results of the game, right? What's what's happening uh, within you is 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 totally attached to the physical reality of your performance on, you know, on the field. Would you say that, you know, where, where would you say at that moment that all of your identity, if you could define your identity there, what was it? I'm a baseball player. Uh, more importantly, I'm an all-American baseball player. That's so, it. Yeah, and that's, that's it. That, I mean, that's, that's where you, you found your worth. Is that correct? Like that was your worth is if you had that, you had, if you didn't do that, you had no worth, right? Correct. The more games I won, the more valuable I was. The more times I saw my name in the headlines, the more significant I felt. So you get a big W that day, you come home um, and you're on top, you know, title nine, right? You're, you're a pop, top nine, right? And then you, uh, then you lose the next game. You maybe get 10 enrolled or something like that and you come home and you feel worthless, right? You feel like there's, there's no reason. Would you say that that's accurate? Correct. Correct. And I feel like there was, there's a, there was a constant cycle of, yes, those three words, you should quit, created a big chip on my shoulder, but after every game I lost, the thoughts were, my eighth grade coach was right. I should have quit. Always. Even in college. Even after I won several awards. 
even after I was an all-star uh, in the Northwoods League. It continued to happen and continued to beat me down. Why do you think um, in, in that moment with obviously uh, – well, not just that moment, throughout all of those moments – uh, that that those coaches' words affected you so much. Well, long story short, I didn't grow up in the best of households. There was a lot of alcoholism. There was oppression. Uh, my parents were there physically, but they weren't there emotionally or mentally. Uh, so I sought approval and tried to impress uh, those above me, like my coaches, because I saw them as father figures to me. Uh, and this is why I did everything they ever asked me to do, and then some. Um, but I, like I said earlier, I desperately sought the approval of them because, again, my value was attached to my performance. And if I won a game and got that pat on the back or uh, a great comment in an article from them or a great comment in our huddle after the game about how good I performed, I felt so great. But it was because of the influence they had on me. And, and you'll find with a lot of athletes, the influence their coaches have on them is a lot greater than the influence their own parents have on them. And that was my case uh, mm -hmm. with every coach that I had, no matter how terrible they were. Yeah, I always wanted to impress them. So how much, how much do you think your message – obviously it's powerful to players because – I mean, I went through a similar phase as well. Still, I mean, kind of am in a way. How much of your message is directed to the coaches and their importance in realizing their actual position of power in, in these young men or, or young kids, you know, from youth basically until we're supposed to grow up and do big things? So to, to kind of jump ahead a little bit, one of, the, one of the chapters in my book, the conclusion actually is Letter to All Leaders. And I really just pour my heart out. Uh, to all coaches and parents. And I basically illustrate that I hope they recognized one thing. And it was that I remembered every good and bad thing they said to me. I remembered every action that they took, even when they thought I wasn't watching. And I know I am not the only athlete who feels this way. And I end the, the chapter with, Coaches, your athletes are going to remember you for the rest of their life. How do you want to be remembered? And originally when I started this path from this immense pain, identity crisis, depression, suicide, uh, to what now I believe is my purpose, uh, it became evident that I, I, I believed in a future where every athlete understands that sports don't define who they are. It hit me over time uh, that, okay, where are these kids getting this information from? Where do they feel the need to constantly perform and wrap their identity in their performance? And it's coming from their greatest influences. And some of the stories I heard of terrible, horrific coaching and the things that they've said to their athletes uh, led me to believe, okay, I also have to shift this message to coaches because they need to know that their influence and their impact is far greater than they think it is. I remember when we were talking um, on the phone and one thing you kind of hinted at there, but didn't dive into is how big of an influence 
the parents have, uh, you know, not only obviously younger in their childhood, um, but throughout this process. Can you kind of dive into that too about the parental uh, role in that as well? So I have a mentorship program now called Coachability and where I see athletes at all levels. Uh, and we kind of go through a, a, what I call a seven-step program. It's really not steps. They're just principles that we learn along the way. And a lot of the athletes that come to see me are brought to me by their parents. And their parents immediately say, you know, things like, my son is having this issue on the field. My daughter is having this issue. I just can't seem to reach them. They have a problem. He has a problem. She has an issue. They have bad parents or uh, coaches. And 99 times out of 100, the kids that come to see me that have these issues, uh, the real problem is the parent. A lot of the issues are coming from the parent. See, a lot of times we, we like to treat the symptoms, the nervousness before games, the self-doubt, the lack of confidence, uh, the deprecating uh, and negative self-talk that a lot of kids have. Uh, we like to treat those symptoms. But where are these symptoms coming from? What is the root cause of this? And I'll, sh- I'll share a uh, story real quickly. Uh, I have a pitcher, former minor league pitcher, who was drafted uh, second round. Uh, or actually, yeah, second round. Uh, I was thinking he was the compository round, but he's actually second round. At 18 years old. And they give him a $1.5 million signing bonus. Uh, six foot four, can touch 100 miles an hour. Both brothers are playing in the major leagues. Uh, dad was a two-time All-American in college, also played minor league baseball. And he got injured, had Tommy John his first season. And a year later, his $1.5 million signing bonus is gone because he got hooked on opioids which eventually turned into heroin and spent all of his money on drugs. And now he was trying to make his way back up to independent ball, minor league baseball. He's still really young. And in bullpens, he is lights out. One of the best bullpens I've ever seen thrown. But when he goes in on the mound to play or to pitch in maybe live BP or uh, in simulated games, uh, he's a totally different pitcher. His velocity goes down. He's all over the place. So my job is to try to help him figure this out. Now, I didn't know at the time that he had an opioid addiction, that he had been in and out of rehab. So I have to, as his mental conditioning coach, I have to figure out what is the root cause of this issue. And a lot of times it comes from a, need to impress somebody. And usually that's an, that's a parent. Mm-hmm. And after he mm-hmm. tells me all of these things about opioids and heroin, I know through my years of experience and working with other athletes who have ho- opioid addictions, that 80% of opioid addicts have had a neglectful relationship in their childhood from someone who had major influence on them, whether that be a parent, a coach, uh, a grandparent, somebody who had significant influence on them. So I ask him, what, what is it? Tell me your relationship with your dad. And immediately he clams up. And I say, what, what's going on? 
And he opens up to me. And as I start to ask him more and more questions, he, he reveals to me that in his home, they had this rule that their dad wouldn't talk to them after a bad start until their next start was good enough for him. Hmm. And I ask him, when did this start? How, were you, how young were you when this rule was implemented? And he goes, ever since I started playing baseball. At six years old, hmm. at six years old, could you imagine at six years old, your dad not talking to you because you have a quote unquote bad start? Hmm. So he's grown up his whole life wanting to impress his father and having uh, this relationship with baseball that in order for my dad to love me, I have to perform at a really high level. And you know what the sad part about it is? Four Mm -hmm. years ago was the last time he pitched and he had a bad start. And four (laughs) years ago was the last time his dad talked to him. Jeez. Insane. So if I'm his coach, I'm his mentor, I can use all of the sports psychology tactics I, I want to help fix him. We can do visualization. We can do breathing. We can do declarations. We can do goal setting. I can help him try to control his focus a little bit better, pick up the pace while he's pitching so he's not overthinking, get him to a point where he's able to perform on the field uh, at a high level. But if I don't get to the root cause of his issue, he's going to continue to circle around the same mountain. He's going to continue to struggle with the same things, and I'm never going to fix what's really causing these issues. Mm. And I would owe him uh, – it, it would be awful – for me to do that to him. So we have to figure out, okay, where is this coming from? And then to, to hear that, you know, I, my immediate reaction is I just want to hug you. And I want to mm-hmm. tell you that you're good enough, man. And that no matter what your dad says, it's just not true because you are loved and you are significant and you are more than a baseball player and your performance on the field doesn't determine your worth. Your dad mm-hmm. doesn't determine your worth. But so that's he- hard. So you, so basically, you know, and why I think that that's so hard is you have to really repattern their belief system, you know, because that's not how they think, right? Correct. Uh, their, their belief system is wrapped up in these um, laws that they've made in their head. That's been yep. a reality since, you know, he was six. Yep. So, and then also when his adolescent brain is taking in all of this information and creating patterns of factual information and creating the foundation for the rest of his life, you know, that's been imprinted in his, in his, in his head. Correct. Correct. And you know, my title, uh, mental conditioning coach, uh, really says it all. These athletes that come to me, uh, with a problem on the field, uh, have been led to believe a certain thing about themselves their whole entire life. And usually it's come from a parent uh, or or a coach or a teacher, again, somebody who has had significant influence on them. And they were told this one particular thing in this athlete's case, you're not good enough to talk to me unless you perform well. So I'm going to judge my relationship with you based on your performance. So if I have a bad performance, I'm not good enough. Mm-hmm. So they've been told this and they've agreed with it by saying it to themselves over and over and over and over again until they've conditioned themselves to believe it to be true. Mm-hmm. So I come in and I intervene and I figure out, okay, why do you believe this is true? Where does this come from? 
Who said that? Why, why do you think this is true? And then from that point on, teaching him what is true and then conditioning it the same way he's conditioned himself before and conditioning it over and over and over again, you are more than a baseball player. Your performance is not determined by, or your value is not determined by your performance until he finally believes that to be true. And he finally can perform freely without this burden of trying to impress his dad. That's so awesome that you're able to kind of be that go-to person for people coming to you. My question to you is, what was that moment for you when you kind of had that paradigm shift and you kind of changed your mindset to, um, I'm going to free myself and really allow myself to to um, help other people going through the same issue? That's that's such a great question, Bo. Like I told you before, I struggled with uh, depression and suicide, attempted my own life three times. Uh, all three of them were intervened um, by the grace of God. And the second, the second one, and uh, I thought I turned my teammate or my phone off uh, and, and was about ready to do it. And my phone rings and it's a teammate of mine uh, who I played with in the Northwoods League, actually, who had just uh, gotten off a plane in Dallas and his next flight was canceled. And I lived in Waco, which was an hour south of Dallas at the time or now. Uh, and asked me if he could stay with me. And uh, uh, then he found out what I was doing, and he stayed with me for a few days until I was okay. And that kind of put me up on my feet again for a while, uh, and I just kind of distracted myself. I graduated. Uh, I continued the strength and conditioning route as a coach. But again, at the back of my head, this, this thought of I should still be playing right now never left. Uh, and this loss that I had in the World Series never really left. And about two years later, I decided, you know what, uh, this this is this is it. I'm gonna I'm gonna be serious about this now. I'm gonna plan all of this out. I knew the date I was gonna do it. I knew how I was gonna do it. I wrote my suicide note. Uh, I said my goodbyes to everybody. Uh, and on the day I planned on committing suicide, I got a phone call from a mentor of mine. And whom I hadn't spoken to in a, a long time, I answered thinking that it would be the last time I would ever talk to him. And thank God I did because he saved my life. When I answered, he refused to believe my answer of I'm fine whenever he asked me how I was doing. He kept going, no, really, how are you doing? No, really, how are you doing? No, really, how are you doing? Until I finally told him that I was planning on taking my own life that day. And... uh he stayed on the phone with me uh, until I promised him that I wouldn't do anything. And then he called me every hour on the hour for the next couple of days just to make sure I was okay. And through our several phone calls, uh, he told me a, a lot of things that uh, at the time I didn't understand, but now I fully understand. Uh, one of them was there is purpose in our pain, Riley. We don't go through what we go through for ourselves. We go through what we go through to help someone else who is going to go through the same thing. Like I said, at the time, I didn't know what that meant because I was in the darkest period of my life where I literally felt like I was drowning every single day. And also out of this phone call came a encouragement to start writing in a journal because ever since baseball ended, I put it away. I got really bitter towards baseball, wanted nothing to do with it. I couldn't go to games because I didn't want to know what it was like to sit on the other side of the fence. 
Um, and I just put it away, hoping it would just go away and that I could move on with life. But it just continued to fester. And for the first time, I start writing in this journal. And he's encouraging me to write every story, uh, every detail, no matter how embarrassing or humiliating the story is, no matter how transparent the, dis- the detail is, no matter how vulnerable I feel while I write this. And there were days uh, we actually set out to write one page a day, one page a day in our journal uh, and start from the beginning and go to the very end. The beginning when I've made my first error in eighth grade uh, in left field to the last pitch I threw in the College World Series. Write it all down, one page at a time, one day at a time. And there were days where I would be typing on my computer, uh, which my journal was on, and I, I couldn't even see the screen in front of me because I was crying. And throughout this whole writing process, I started meeting more and more athletes, former athletes who were struggling with the same things I was struggling with, identity crisis, depression, not knowing what to do with life after sports. And the, the stories I heard from them was so heartbreaking uh, that I felt so discontented. And I thought, somebody's got to do something about this. And I told my mentor this uh, shortly after I started feeling this way. And he said, you know what, Riley? This is God's way of saying that you're the one that's supposed to be doing something about this. And he asked me, do you know of any books that are helping athletes transition out of sports? Do you know any programs that are helping athletes transition out of sports? Do you know any books that are teaching life lessons through sports? And I I didn't know any at the time. I still don't. If you guys do, please let me know. From that point on, he said, this is your purpose. This is what you're supposed to do. And my journal turned into my book. The book changed from one book really into two books. Uh, It is the story of my life, the story of my baseball career. Every chapter is a season or a game that I pitched in. And then it's followed up by the second book, the book I wish I would have been able to read back when I was playing the knowledge applied section of the chapter, which is to me, knowledge applied is wisdom, which is the greatest thing we could ever achieve. And in the knowledge applied section, it's basically all of the life lessons I learned during that time in my life and how they apply to you and how they have applied to my life afterwards. And when I got done writing, it took me about a year and a half. And, you know, every day this mentor would text me, you know, did you write today? Did you write today? And after that point of uh, where it switched to, from my journal to the book, it, it started with create what you wish existed. That was the thought now, create what you wish existed. And he would text me every morning, 8 a.m., every single day, create what you wish existed, just to remind me to write until I was finally done. And when I got done, I put it aside because I was, I was scared of it. For two reasons. The one being that this book is completely transparent. I'm completely vulnerable. There are stories in here that make me look a certain way, and I'm afraid for the whole world to read it. And the other reason why it scares me is, number two, is uh, I'm afraid of the magnitude it has. I'm afraid of the impact that I believe it can have. And I put it off for a good year and a half. And I finally went on vacation uh, to Los Angeles, California to see one of my friends. And on this vacation, I met a woman 
who basically solidified my decision to jump ship from strength and conditioning uh, to pursuing what this book and the magnitude it has. I was telling her my story. I was telling her about my baseball career. I was telling her about my book. I was telling her about this mentorship program that I wanted to create. And I told her about my battles with depression, suicide, and she starts crying. And I ask her why she's crying. And she says, you remind me of my son. And I said, how so? He goes, he was a pitcher just like you. I said, was. She said, yeah, he pitched in the minor leagues. And I said, pitched, what's he doing now? She goes, well, after he injured his shoulder, uh, the team he was playing for released him. And that was the end of his career. And unfortunately, the end of his life. He decided to commit suicide shortly after his release. And he wrote a suicide note. And on this note, it said, all I am is a baseball player. All I know is baseball. I don't want to be anything else. And I don't want to know anything else. And at the end of our conversation, we hug and we're walking away from each other. She turns to me and says, my son needed to read your book. And my son needed to be a part of your mentorship program. So that's really how it started. This woman graciously sharing her son's story to me. And uh, it's always been about create what you wish existed. So really, it's my mentorship, the book, everything is based on what I wish I would have been able to have back when I was a kid, back when I was playing. The book I wish I would have been able to read back when I was playing. The mentorship program that I wish I would have been able to be a part of back when I was playing. The speaking, the messages that I'm sharing are messages that I wish I would have heard back when I was playing. And that's really what everything's been based on. So you kept, you kept, and you mentioned this multiple times that, you know, talking about with players about, you know, their worth not being in just baseball and they're worth more. And, um, you know, their identity is more and it, it's, it's, they have more of a purpose um, for you personally. Um, how did that transition in your life? Where was, you know, where did you tra- transition your identity to, what was your purpose for and how did you make that transition from baseball to living out to what you are now and changing? What did you change your mindset from, from where you were to where you went? That's a, that, that is a great question, Joey. It's a long process. I'm still trying to figure it out. You know, I think a lot of it had to do with the people that were brought into my life at perfect times. And those people who kind of shifted my perspective and truly taught me the truth about myself, uh, the truth about my creator, uh, and why my identity needs to be in him, referring to God, rather than in what I do. It's just been miraculous. Again, I, I open this up with, you know, we don't really learn things until we look back at it. And I think our faith is built on that as well, because it's hard when we're going through the thick of it and we don't know what's next. We don't know what the future holds for us. We don't know how we're going to pay for our bills. We don't know how the outcome is going to be. And it's hard not to worry about it. But retrospectively, looking back at our lives, we see miracle after miracle after miracle where we were in situations where we thought was going to defeat us. 
but yet here we are standing victorious. And I think a lot of that has to do, not a lot of it, all of that has to do with our creator and who we were created to be. And my shift from I'm a baseball player to I'm a child of God is really uh, the reason why I'm still doing what I'm doing and the reason why uh, I continue to pursue this purpose uh, because it was made very clear to me through confirmation after confirmation after confirmation of going to speak to these young kids and sharing my story. You know, before when I started speaking, I always used to say, it's not about me, it's about the message. It's not about me, it's about the message. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I would try to avoid talking about suicide and depression. I would try to avoid sharing my stories. And I wasn't really resonating with the crowd. I wasn't really resonating with my audience. Um, And it was because I wasn't being real with them. I wasn't being authentic with them. And I realized, yeah, it's not about me. It's about the message. But my story is the message. Mm -hmm. So I start sharing about my issues with depression and suicide and why I continue to wear this mask and continue to struggle with these things because I didn't want anyone to know that me, the All-American, the All-Star, the captain of my team, had these issues. I didn't want to see anybody... Uh, I didn't want anyone to look at me as weak. And I share my stories. I'm starting to share my issues with suicide and depression. And the response I'm getting is on one hand, amazing. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, it's heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. Because these kids who come up to me after the speech to shake my hand, and some of them hug me, a complete stranger, and the look on the, they have on their eyes as if I'm the first person to tell them that it's okay not to be okay mm-hmm. and that they're not going through their struggle alone. It's, it's, it's truly tremendous. So one hand, I'm super happy that I'm the first one to tell them these truths. But on the other hand, it hurts me to be the first person to tell them these truths. So again, it's hard to do. It's hard to talk about suicide. It's hard to be vulnerable, but it's absolutely necessary because we have a whole young generation of kids who are struggling right now. They just did a recent poll uh, in this article I was reading. They interviewed 20,000 people, and they found that in this 20,000 people, the loneliest group of individuals based on age, uh, age demographic, in this group was teenagers, 14 to 18 even lonelier than elderly because we live in an era that is so easy to communicate, but we are so far disconnected. And these kids are just, if you could read some of the messages I get after my speeches on social media, if you could hear some of the stories I hear, these kids are begging for help. They may not know how to articulate how to ask for help, but they need it. And it's time for us to start listening and to start looking them in the eye and say, hey, I've gone through this too. And this is how I got out of it. And these are the things that I did. And these are the things that I wish I would have done. That's powerful. Yeah. And, you know, one thing, Riley, as I wanted to kind of give you some reassurance and deepen your relationship with God, there is just your impact already, even just on me. Um, you know, I'm sitting here looking at the text messages right now is that I look, 
uh, last night I actually had, was, you were on my mind and I was thinking about this and I texted one of my players and I asked him, I said, why do you play baseball? And he said, cause, and I'm reading these word for word. He said, cause it's my life. My life would be nothing without baseball. And I said, and I said, why? And he said, because it's fun. It teaches me life lessons. It helps me get away from all the stuff that's happening in my life. Mm. And I was like, I said, I said, well, what's the point? Why do you get, uh, why do you get to wake up every morning? And he said, what do you mean? I said, so God created you to come to this planet to play baseball. And he said, no, he created me to impact others' lives and serve. Mm. And I said, I said, how do you impact other lives and serve? Uh, I said, how did you impact lives and serve today? And he, he was making a joke because he couldn't think of anything. And he said, I bought someone a Slurpee. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> and I said, I said, do you see my point? And he said, yes. And I said, and I was like, God didn't put you here to play baseball. We must be mindful that we must be, we must constantly monitor what we want and what our selfish plans are. We need to make him more and us less. What, yeah. uh, what could you have done today, uh, different today? And then we went into talking about, you know, again, what he's doing, he's not changing what he's doing throughout his day. It's okay to enjoy baseball, but how do you, you know, take that and know what your purpose is and how do you continue to serve the ones around you as you go yeah. throughout your day and, and, and find purpose in that rather than, you know, at the beginning of the conversation, you know, you heard him say it, he said, because my life would be nothing without baseball. Yeah. You know? Um, and I just wanted to feed you that encouragement that, you know, even within our conversation, you know, the people that you continue to impact, um, and just the impact that you've already had on me and what this podcast, again, this getting out the impact, that tree that it will have, um, yeah. and, and just, uh, you know, what you're able, you're doing and, you know, um, we're just so, you know, again, you impacted me so much by your story, um, and, and, you know, bringing some awareness to an issue that, like you said, a lot of people don't want to talk about yeah. and, um, you know, I just wanted to, to feed you that is that, you know, you've already had an impact, not only on so many more than just me, but just on me personally. And one of my players, you never know, that could have been a moment that, you know, really changes his life is that one, you know, 10, 20 minute text message. Yeah, that's amazing, Joey. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. That, uh, yeah, that's amazing, man. Uh, I can't, <laughs> I can't thank you enough for that. No, Absolutely. Well, uh, you know, Riley, one thing we want to do is obviously this isn't, this is the start of the conversation, but definitely not the end, right? Good. <laughs> Good. Yeah. So, so with that being said, uh, you know, what we want to say is that a big part of this is you, we know, and again, if someone's having these thoughts in their head since they're six years old, um, and they're coming to you, this podcast, talking to you one time, reading your book, that's not going to be the end of it. Again, Correct. that's going to be, that's the Correct. beginning of the conversation. So, but with that being said, you know, if we want to get started, we got to get started. So, um, you know, if, if people wanted to, you know, again, obviously they can, they can purchase your book. Um, and, and what's the best way for them to do that? Let's just start there. Well, you can, it's available on Amazon. If you want it quickly, uh, I will say this, uh, for the record, uh, Amazon takes a huge cut of it. Uh, mm -hmm. just letting you know, as a self-publishing author, and uh, but you, it's also available on RileyTincher.com uh, if you want an autographed copy that way, too. Uh, it's also available on Kindle and it's going to soon be available as an audiobook as well. Uh, so all of those routes is fine. Whatever is convenient for you guys. Awesome. And then the next thing, too, I also wanted to make another point of this applicable as well is how can people get in contact with you? Um, you know, again, if it's somebody, let's say you're just an athlete and they want to get in contact with you, if it's a coach, if they want you to come speak, if they want you to do any of these things, what's the, what's the best way for them to do that? 
I try to make myself as easily accessible as possible. I'm I'm all over every social media at Riley Tincher, Twitter, Instagram, uh, Facebook, all of it. Uh, or you could email me at Riley at RileyTincher.com, or you can go to my website, RileyTincher.com, uh, and fill out one of the uh, questionnaires or just uh, comment directly. And I, I manage everything, so I get them immediately. So you're not talking to some robot or some uh, my assistant. You're talking to me, so you can reach me directly. Awesome. And then uh, one thing I wanted you to dive into before we wrap up here is I wanted you to dive into applicable items that coaches can take away. And, you know, what are, what are some things as coaches that we need to be more mindful of? And also, too, how do we go about having these conversations and, um, you know, just making it applicable to our, our everyday? That's great. Uh, that's a great question. Uh, it's needed to be asked. Uh, the question I get a lot is, how do I reach my players more? And that has so many different, that has so many definitions, you know, either buy-in or how do I get them to share their struggles with me? Uh, and I have found through my speaking that again, me, a complete stranger sharing my story to these kids and them feeling the need to share their story with me says everything. They don't know me. They don't know who I am, but yet they trust me enough to share their innermost struggles. And so if coaches, if you want your players to buy in to you, again, it's not about your program. They come to play for you because they believe in you and they're going to do what you ask them to do when you are real with them. And if you want them to be vulnerable, you have to first be vulnerable. Uh, there's a great quote, Coach Patty Gasso, uh, OU Softball. She says, my, my athletes will connect with me more and go the extra mile for me if I am real with them and I am honest with them. And it's so funny. We think that these kids, they don't know what the real world is like, uh, quote unquote. And so therefore they don't have any real problems, but that is far from the truth. And just like you can't fool adults, you can't fool fool kids either. And kids, just like adults, would much rather follow someone who is real than someone who always pretends to be right. So vulnerability is huge. I get it. It's hard. It's nearly impossible, especially when you're supposed to be the man. You know, you're supposed to be the head of the program. You're supposed to be the head, strong, steadfast guy, the pillar. But there is a lot of strength in vulnerability and authenticity. Uh, so I would start there. The other thing, too, is know what you're good at and know what you're not good at. And that goes as far as a lot of coaches aren't talking about the mental side of things because they try to make it so simple and try to overlook it like these kids don't know what this means, but they do. So if you're not good at the mental side of things, hire someone who is. There is a lot of us out there that are willing to help you any time that you want. And that's got to be starting with number one. I believe this is we're trending in the right direction as far as sports psychology goes. I mean, the fact that, you know, Wright State hires Diamond Hall as their mental performance coordinator, that says a lot uh, that we're headed in the right direction. 
they say 90% of sports is mental. I would say 100% of sports is mental because you are living with your brain and your thoughts all day long. Mm -hmm. And these kids don't know how to decipher what they're going through. This is why they need a professional. And a lot of times we're not talking about this. We're not talking about getting to the real root of the problems. And this is why it's really important to hire help, hire a consultant, hire a sports psychologist, hire a mental conditioning coach. Uh, I, I want to, out. yeah, and I, I don't, I don't mean to cut you off. I also wanted to add emphasis there is that also too having a coach like that around isn't always just for the extremes. You know, even players that are struggling 0 for 20, you know, 0 for 10 or, you know, their first losses or, you know, things like that. Even if it's, you know, just being able to handle those adverse moments and having someone like that there as a resource. I think sometimes people have, you know, that old thought of uh, psychologists or things like that is, is been, you know, only when, you know, there's an extreme measure, all of a sudden I need a professional, you know? Yeah. But I wanted to add that there, you know? Yeah. Well, that's great that you did because. Uh, there is a stigma attached to psychology. There is a stigma attached to counseling and all of that. And the stigma is right. You know, people only with only people with problems go to see counselors, but everybody has problems. And one of the things I'm, I'm sharing in my speech is usually when we're going through something uh, big or small, we, we like to exaggerate it for what it is, what it isn't. And then we like to think that we're the only ones going through it. And throughout the three years of my mentorship program, I've had the fortune of, of uh, coaching some uh, high-level athletes, uh, many of whom you know. And uh, I can tell you that you're not the only one who's going through your issues. I have a Heisman Trophy winner, a former Heisman Trophy winner, who struggles with feeling inadequate. We're talking about the Heisman Trophy winner, the number one college football player in the country, and he struggles with self-worth because he feels that nothing he does is good enough for his dad. I have, a, I have an all-pro football player who just signed a well over $100 million contract who has an entourage of five to ten people around him at all times, but yet he struggles with loneliness because he keeps everybody at arm's length because... If they only knew the real him, they wouldn't like him. And I also, I've worked with several uh, college athletes who are the kings and queens of their university. Everyone knows who they are. Their face is on every single billboard. Their name is in every single headline. Everybody knows who they are, but yet no one knows they struggle with depression. No one knows they struggle with anxiety. So if you start to think that you're the only one going through what you're going through, you're dead wrong. The phrase, the, the, the kind of the motto of my program is everyone needs a team, everyone needs a coach, and everyone needs to be coachable. That doesn't just apply to athletes. It doesn't just apply to adults. That applies to everyone. And you can't have one without the other. I can have a great team of support around me, but if I continue to do what is wrong, nothing is going to change. I can hire a coach. But if I'm not coachable and I don't do anything he or she tells me to do or make any of the adjustments he or she tells me to make, then it is absolutely pointless to have a coach. You can't have one without the other. Love it. Yeah, man, it's such a powerful message. And I think it, like I mentioned, man, it 
It applies to the whole time span of the athlete and it applies to the whole time, time span of a coach. Um, it's, it's like Joey and I said, you know, no matter what side you're on, you have to be improving and the, the mental game of baseball is coming, whether you like it or not. Um, Correct. And like you mentioned, we, we have to gain awareness. So these come to light and come to fruition because many, many athletes are struggling and it's, and we can't wait until people are taking their own lives or people are doing these things to bring it to light. We have to tackle it before that comes. So, yep. Well, last week alone, last week alone, two 17 year old kids, a star baseball player in Cincinnati and a star football player in uh, New York, both take their lives. Both had a scholarship to play division one and no one knows why they took their lives. And this is like you said, the mental side is coming. It's already there. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah. this is important. This is so important because you mentioned it. Uh, it's already there, but we're not aware of it. And I am a big believer in, they say knowledge is power, but awareness is much more powerful and out of awareness, real change happens. That's why it's so important not just to treat symptoms. It's great to have knowledge in visualization. It's great to have knowledge in declarations. It's great to have knowledge in goal setting. But they mean nothing if you're not aware of the real cause of your problem. So, Riley, your message is strong. Um, It's going to resonate with a lot of our listeners. Do you have anything you'd like to add on um, for them to hear before we kind of uh, exit today? Yes, uh, I actually forgot to mention earlier when you asked how I transitioned from, you know, the darkest period of my life to where I am now and how I found purpose in it. And uh, when I was started speaking, I wasn't necessarily done with my book yet. I was still in the writing phase. I was still in the editing phase. And in every single book, uh, there's a drop cap. Uh, Not every single book has it, but most books have a drop cap at the beginning of every chapter. It's the first letter. It's three lines long, two lines long, but it's a big letter uh, and it, to start each chapter. And when I got done reading uh, and editing, I, I looked back and I, I, it, my book is 20 chapters long. And I looked back at all the drop caps, wrote them all down, and they spelled out, I am more than an athlete. And that is when my message changed. So now when I go to speak to teams, the title of the message is you are more. And if I don't end this podcast by telling athletes that are listening to this, uh, even coaches, that you are more than an athlete or you are more than a coach and you are more than anything you have done, are doing, and ever will do. And you are more than your circumstance You are more than who others say you are, and you are more than who you believe you are because your creator is more. And the same spirit that rose our Savior, Jesus Christ, from a borrowed grave is alive and active in us. And he is so much more than any problems we will ever face any struggles we will ever face, and any setbacks we will ever face, and any mountains we will ever climb. But if I don't tell you first, and if you don't start believing first, that you are more than what you do, and you are more than who you believe you are, nothing will change. 
What a powerful message, man. Well, hey, Riley, I, I can't you know thank you enough for jumping on and bringing awareness to this issue and the impact that it has, the impact that you've uh, had on just me personally and um, the impact that you're going to have on all of our listeners. So I just wanted to tell you, you know, say thank you again for jumping on with us. Well, again, Joey and Bo, thank you guys so much. You know, you talk about uh, power of social media and the fact that uh, I think you guys said that you guys are in 14 different countries and um, it's amazing how you can just post one thing and in a second, it's all the way around the world. And that is, that is really uh, why I'm here is because I heard about you guys through this person on social media. And then I reached out to you guys on social media. So I am very grateful uh, that you guys invited me on. Uh, I feel so honored to be a guest. Uh, and I think what you guys are doing is amazing um, because you're bringing, you're bringing a very holistic style to coaching, to athletes, to baseball, uh, to life. Uh, and again, by bringing me on and highlighting some of these things that athletes are going through, whether we believe it or not, um, is going to be powerful and it needs to be said. So again, a million times, thank you guys for having me on. Absolutely. Thanks, man. Man, Riley had such a powerful message, and I know there's so many people dealing with this issue, and as coaches, um, you know, it's just such a big thing to, to take on. This call takeaway is brought to you by Quality at Bats. Don't forget to visit qualityatbats.com to further your mental approach to the game. Man, like you mentioned, such a strong message. What was your biggest takeaway, Joey? Um, I think now, again, selfishly being a coach, I see it from a coach's perspective and things that we just need to be more mindful of as we're going through our daily interactions. Uh, it's one thing to talk about it, but to make it applicable, um, you know, there's a lot of different things that we need to, you know, we need to be intentional about when we're talking to players, uh, when t players are, you know, reaching out to us and, um, you know, they're, they're frankly asking for help. And, you know, we tend to be more mindful of those situations and uh, be there as a mentor and help them through those situations and see where they actually have their identity on them and have the questions, you know, have those questions like I just mentioned that, you know, asking my player um, is where they find their identity, why they play baseball. And, you know, I think it's just we need to be a good steward of our positions and what we need to be taken care of. So that was my biggest takeaway. What was yours, Bo? Yeah, mine kind of is twofold going along those lines. I mean, you know, in the now if you're struggling with anything, if you're, you know, a baseball player, no matter what sport you play or just anyone in general, um, don't be afraid to reach out. There's millions of people going through the same thing. And second part is coaches. We really have to move the game forward, um, really open up this mental side of the game because it's affecting kids now. And hopefully by spreading some awareness, we can kind of reduce the chances of it um, happening in the future as well. So, yeah, no, absolutely. Well, guys, as always, you know, reach out. If you know anybody that's struggling with this, if you know, you know, you, you have a coach, one of your friends that told you one of his players is something that they went through. Maybe a team just had a loss. Um, you know, this is a great thing to, to spread this around. I mean, like you said, it's awareness. It's all about awareness. Um, and that's one thing that we want to be here with the farm system and being that holistic development. We want to talk about the things that a lot of people don't want to talk about, you know, um, and at the same time, too, you know. Uh, we stepped on some toes and he stepped on some toes that just, you know, again, we need to be good, better stewards as coaches that take care of these men and uh, women that put their, put their lives in our hands. And so uh, this is a great episode to share and uh, you know, maybe some change some things up in your life. So don't be afraid to share this uh, retweet this. Um, and also, you know, uh, show some of your friends and uh, post it on your own social media. Um, let us know what you think. 
you know, go on our, our website, the system.farm. You can leave comments there. You can share from there. We have some resources coming. We have some big things in the work. Me and Bo have been putting the, putting the uh, footwork in and we're, we're, we're moving some things, having some great things that will be coming for you guys here soon. So stay tuned for that. But until next time, Farm System out. Ah!